Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before. Because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Dea, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Dea Oat Cream Blend. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. A warning, this episode features dramatizations and discussions of extreme violence. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about Narasimha. Today's episode combines elements from a number of legends and stories about this avatar of Lord Vishnu for dramatic effect. Varaha the boar squealed with pain as Hiranyaksha threw him to the ground. It seemed like every time Varaha tried to gain the upper hand, the demon lord's untiring flurry of fists would beat him back down. Varaha gasped for breath, blood spilling from his mouth. He was losing. Varaha was the third avatar of Vishnu, the preserver of the world, who had battled the forces of evil and chaos since the dawn of time. He had come to Earth in the form of the great boar in order to save it from Hiranyaksha. The evil Asura demon had dragged the Earth to the bottom of the primordial sea in an effort to destroy it. Their battle had raged for 1,000 years, neither able to unseat the other. But now, as Varaha looked, he saw sweat bead on Hiranyaksha's broad forehead. After an entire millennium, the demon lord was finally beginning to tire. Now was his chance. With a great thrust of his head, Varaha impaled the demon's stomach with his twin boar tusks. Though Hiranyaksha feebly tried to fight back, it was over. Varaha had won. As Hiranyaksha took his final breath, Varaha raised the earth out of the sea with his tusks, returning it to the surface. All the living beings of the world rejoiced, crying out in relief. Hiranyaksha had brought the earth to the brink of destruction, but Varaha's victory had restored balance. Darkness had been defeated, but not destroyed. For 1,000 years, Hiranyaksha's twin brother, Hiranyakashipu, had watched the battle from afar. He saw the boar's tusks pierce his sibling's flesh. 
he heard his brother's wail of agony as he sank into the primordial sea. He watched as the boar Varaha left the mortal world to rejoin with Lord Vishnu. Eyes burning with fury, he began to plot his revenge. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week, we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling the stories of their origins, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creations of these beasts, where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose some of humanity's greatest fears. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today we're discussing Narasimha, the fourth avatar of Lord Vishnu. In Hindu mythology, Vishnu took the form of the half-lion, half-man Narasimha to face the evil Asura here in Yakashipu. Vishnu adopted Narasimha's fierce lion appearance to fight evil, injustice, and to protect the earth. The characters of the Hindu pantheon, from the divine devas and powerful asuras to the omnipotent gods, weave a rich and colorful tapestry of stories. Over Hinduism's 4,000-year history, these beings have appeared in thousands of variations of legends and heroic epics. Most of these stories revolve around the Trimurti, a triple deity of ultimate and absolute power. The Trimurti encompasses Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the protector, and Shiva, the destroyer. Each of these gods are aspects of the same supreme being that holds all potential for creation and destruction. They come to Earth in different forms, or avatars, to protect Brahma's creations from evil. Many Hindu sacred traditions come from stories of the exploits of the Trimurti, the battles they waged, the beings they created, and the destruction they caused. Throughout the stories that comprise the Hindu religion, the gods took different forms depending on the task they needed to complete. Lord Vishnu, the protector, came to Earth nine times, appearing each time as a different avatar, the first time he came as Matsya, the fish. The second time as Kurma, the turtle. On his third visit to Earth, Vishnu appeared as Varaha, the boar. Though he fought and killed the demon lord here in Yaksha, this victory would spark an even fiercer battle. The demon here in Yakashapu would soon seek revenge for his brother's death, forcing Lord Vishnu to appear once more this time as the fearsome lion-man, Narasimha. Narasimha was the fourth avatar of Vishnu. 
he had the body of an immensely strong man and the head of a ferocious male lion. He had a long, shaggy mane, teeth like knives, and powerful hands that ended in razor-sharp claws. He was a perfect balance of man and beast, possessing both the intelligence of a human and the savagery of a great cat. When Hiranyaksha died, Hiranyakashipu was inconsolable. He wailed for hours, his red eyes blazing, alternating between weeping for his twin and raging about his brother's killer, Lord Vishnu. He swore bloody vengeance on the god as he rampaged through his palace, toppling furniture, ripping tapestries from the walls, and sending chairs through the windows. When his servants came running to clean up the mess, he brandished his sword and sent them running back in terror. But like a great storm, the tempestuous waters of Hiranyakashipu's rage soon began to calm. Prahilada, Hiranyakashipu's son, was happy to see that his father's grief had come to an end. Perhaps his father was beginning to see the truth of the matter, that Hiranyaksha's death had been necessary and just. Although he was the son of Hiranyakashipu, the evil Asura lord, Prahilada was nothing like his father. He was a devout boy who preferred spending time praying in the temple rather than stirring up chaos. And what's more, Prahilada had a secret. Prahilada was a devotee of Lord Vishnu. When Prahilada was still in his mother's womb, he heard the songs of the traveling musician Narada. Through these, the as yet unborn Prahilada learned of the great works of Lord Vishnu. Narada told him about how Vishnu saved humanity from a great flood, as Matsya the fish. Since the beginning of the world, he had come back to Earth any time chaos threatened to destroy it. Ever since, he had a bhakti, or devotion, to Vishnu. He tried to be a protector of all things, just as Lord Vishnu was. He chanted and prayed in Vishnu's temple and hoped to one day attain enlightenment. Prahilada loved his uncle Hiranyaksha, but he knew that it had been wrong for him to try to drown the earth in the primordial sea. While his father mourned the loss of his twin, Prahilada secretly celebrated that Lord Vishnu had once again kept the world safe. But now it seemed like Hiranyakashipu had turned over a new leaf. While he had once left only chaos and destruction in his wake, now he meditated in the temple for hours on end and went out of his way to do good works. Altogether, Hiranyakashipu seemed like a changed man. One day, years after Hiranyaksha's death, Prahilada watched his father meditating in the temple. For hours, the Asura king prayed. In all that time, Hiranyakashipu did not move a muscle. On his face, he had an expression of perfect tranquility. Maybe, Prahilada thought, he could finally be honest with his father. 
Even as he watched, he could see that Hiranyakashipu was striving for something greater than chaos. Maybe now his father would even join him in his worship of Lord Vishnu. If only Prahilada could have seen the dark thoughts swirling around in his father's head. Though it looked like Hiranyakashipu was lost in his prayers, the evil Asura was distinctly aware of his son's presence. He figured the boy would be there. He practically lived in the temple. Prahilada had never quite measured up to Hiranyakashipu's expectations. The boy was kind, caring, and thoughtful, nothing like his father at all. So, of course, Prahilada would not be able to see that Hiranyakashipu's new attitude was actually a carefully formulated facade. Instead of trying to find enlightenment, Hiranyakashipu was angling for something else. He knew if it looked like he had become a benevolent Asura that the gods might grant him a favor. If everything went right, the favor he would ask would make him unstoppable. Then he could finally have his revenge. And on it went for almost 12,000 years. Here in Yakushipu prayed for hours every day in the temple. He built statues and monuments to Lord Brahma, the creator of the world. He became a charitable and generous king, and the kingdom of the Deityas grew prosperous and happy. Men and gods alike marveled at the changed king's good works. On the final day of the 11,999th year, Hiranyakashipu asked for an audience with Lord Brahma. Hiranyakashipu approached Lord Brahma where he sat on a large, many-petaled lotus blossom floating on an endless lake. Brahma's four faces watched the world, each pointing toward one of the four cardinal directions. With his four hands, he beckoned to Hiranyakashipu, inviting the Asura to join him on his lotus blossom. Lord Brahma spoke with four booming voices that reached the ends of eternity. Hiranyakashipu, king of the Deityas, why do you come before me? Hiranyakashipu cleared his throat. Lord Brahma, I have come to ask for a boon. Now that I have transformed myself and my kingdom, I need help to defend it. My request is this. Grant me that I shall not die by a weapon, nor at the hands of beast or man. Grant me that I shall not die inside or outside, during the day or during the night. Grant me that I shall not die on the ground nor in the sky. And finally, grant me that I shall not be killed by anything, living or not, created by you. This is what I would ask of you. Lord Brahma's four faces each assumed a mask of pensive thought. He pondered this request, weighing it carefully in his mind. Finally, he spoke with four voices. Lord Brahma said, Here in Yakashapu, I have heard of your change of heart these last 12,000 years. You have performed penance. 
You have brought peace and prosperity both to your people and to your own heart. With this in mind, I grant you your boon. As Hiranyakashipu left Brahma on his lotus blossom, he felt his new strength surging through his body. A strange expression came over his face. Now he could never be defeated. He was invincible. For the first time in the 12,000 years since his brother had died, Hiranyakashipu was smiling. Finally, at long last, he would have his revenge. Coming up, Hiranyakashipu reverts to his old ways, this time with the power of invincibility on his side. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Now back to the story. When Lord Vishnu killed Hiranyaksha some 12,000 years past, it was as the god's avatar, the boar Varaha. He used Varaha's strong tusks to raise the world out of the primordial ocean and protect the beings that lived on it. Divine animals play a significant role throughout the Hindu epics and myths. Like Vishnu, many of the gods appeared in the forms of animals, such as Ganesha, the god of wisdom and success, who appears as a man with an elephant head. Hinduism can trace its earliest roots to the Vedic period in India that lasted from 1500 to 500 BCE. For many living in nomadic tribes or agrarian communities in India and Southeast Asia at this time, nature was an ever-present companion. From the deep jungles of Assam to the snows of the Himalayas, the Indian subcontinent has incredibly diverse ecological zones. These areas are home to disparate and many times dangerous animals. As a result, animals often play important roles in Hindu myths and epics. Rather than being portrayed as dangerous monsters, however, animals are almost always allies of the gods. Many Hindu deities have vahanas, or sacred mounts. These animals act as vehicles and partners to the deities, carrying them on their adventures and helping them to complete their divine tasks. The Vahanas and their riders form a symbiotic relationship, symbolizing the partnership between man and nature. These myths encouraged Vedic period Hindus to live in harmony with nature rather than fear it. And in the case of Vishnu and Hiranyakashipu, this harmony was the only thing that could stop Hiranyakashipu's thirst for blood and discord. 
On the day that Hiranyakashipu visited heaven, his son Prahilada went to the temple to meditate and pray to Lord Vishnu. But try as he might, he could not force his mind to clear. He wondered what his father would ask of Brahma. He hoped that whatever it was, the god did not grant it. Prahilada wished that he felt otherwise. For almost 12,000 years, his father had acted as a kind and humble ruler to their people. But whenever Prahilada looked into Hiranyakashipu's red eyes, he could not escape the sense that the old demon was still there. Suddenly, Prahilada's mind cleared. He felt a cool breeze on his face and opened his eyes to find himself standing at the edge of a lake at night, submerged up to his waist. Thousands of lotus flowers floated all around him. A distant peal of thunder caught Prahilada's attention, and he turned to see a dark storm cloud rolling toward him. Lightning ripped through the cloud like spider webs, reaching down to pierce the surface of the lake. Immediately, the lotus flowers erupted into flames. Prahilada watched the conflagration, overwhelmed with a sense of great sadness. Within moments, the lotus flowers were all gone. Then the storm clouds parted. Prahilada's eyes widened in awe, and he stared at the figure that had emerged from the cloud. A great lion with a rippling golden mane was stalking toward him, making its way across the lake. It seemed to glide across the water, never dipping below the surface. Despite the evident ferocity of this great beast, Prahilada was surprised to find that he felt no fear. Instead, he was filled with a sense of peace. He stared into the lion's eyes and saw a thousand twinkling stars. All of the universe was contained in its gaze. Then Prahilada was back in the temple. He tried to picture the lion again, but his vision felt like a distant memory. A bell was tolling somewhere outside. He heard men shouting and the great gates beginning to open. His father had returned. Now that he'd been made invulnerable by Lord Brahma, Hiranyakashipu wasted no time dropping the peaceful facade he had worn for 12,000 years. Upon returning to his kingdom, he gathered a great army of Asuras. Standing before them in gleaming armor, he called for the demons to remember his fallen brother. Hiranyaksha's death would not go unavenged. They would mount an attack on heaven, the dwelling of the gods. A force of thousands spilled over the borders of heaven, led by the red-eyed Asura king. Hiranyakashipu could not be touched. Swords and arrows glanced off his body. Even the powers of the gods could not slow the invincible invader. When the dust had cleared and the battle was over, heaven was in chaos. 
The gods fled to earth, hiding from the Asuras. Their palaces and temples lay empty and fire-blackened. Hiranyakashipu turned to his army and said, We have won the battle and cast the gods out. Now it is the Asuras who rule from heaven and the gods who cower on the earth. From this day forward, only the immortal Hiranyakashipu rules over heaven and earth. Hiranyakashipu chose for himself the largest of the palaces the gods had abandoned. Still covered in the blood of his enemies, Hiranyakashipu strode into the throne room. In the center of the room was a golden dais fashioned to look like Lord Brahma's lotus blossom. Hiranyakashipu took his place on the lotus blossom, the fires of battle still raging in his red eyes. He called for his attendants, saying, Send for my wife, Kayada, and my son, Prahilada. I wish for them to come live with me in my new kingdom of heaven. The attendant nodded sharply and hurried from the room. Hiranyakashipu sat back on the lotus blossom and wiped the sweat and blood from his brow. The first part of his plan was complete. Heaven was his. Soon, he thought, Lord Vishnu would be his as well. As Prahilada was ushered into heaven by his father's men, tears sprang to his eyes. All around was destruction and decay. Acrid smoke hung low over the burning buildings, and the streets were still littered with broken shields and spent arrows. In the gutters flowed a never-ending river of thick red blood. His father, who had spent so long as a penitent, had never truly changed his ways. Deep inside, he still had evil coursing through his veins. It had all been a ploy, a trick to fool Brahma into making Hiranyakashipu unstoppable. Hiranyakashipu's men led Prahilada and his mother to the largest palace, where two groups of three soldiers each had to pull open the heavy golden doors. Inside, Hiranyakashipu sat cross-legged on the lotus blossom dais. Now Prahilada could see that any trace of his father's penitent attitude was gone for good. The king looked crazed, his red eyes blazing as he gesticulated wildly, giving commands to his generals. Sensing their approach, the king looked up and smiled. He motioned for Prahilada to come to him. Hiranyakashipu said, Prahilada, my beloved son, I have brought the gods of heaven to their knees for you. I have conquered a new kingdom for you. Soon I will vanquish the murderer Vishnu, and then all I have taken will be yours. What do you think of this? Prahilada sighed. He knew his father loved him, but he couldn't condone what the Asura king had done. Prahilada said, Dear father, you should not have done this. You have cast the gods out from their homes and sworn vengeance against him that I worship. 
Father, please forget your earthly attachments and join me in my devotion to Vishnu. He is the soul and protector of all the gods' creations and exists everywhere. He will forgive you for what you have done. Hiranyakashipu sprang to his feet in a rage, shattering the carved golden lotus blossom into millions of pieces. He drew his sword, pointing it at the boy. You treacherous snake, he snarled. You have betrayed your father and your people. Vishnu is my enemy. If you follow him, then you are my enemy too. Brandishing his sword in the air, Hiranyakashipu called for the guards to kill the traitor standing before him. As one, the generals rushed toward Prahilada with their swords raised. But as they swung their weapons toward the boy, something strange happened. They could not pierce Prahilada's skin, no matter how hard they tried. One by one, the generals grew tired, dropping their swords before Prahilada. Miraculously, the boy remained unharmed. When their attacker had finished, Prahilada spoke. Father, I worship Vishnu and he protects all who are devoted to him. Your swords cannot hurt me unless Lord Vishnu wills it so. He bowed his head, crossed his legs, and began to pray. Hiranyakashipu was raging. There had to be some way to kill this boy. Thinking quickly, he motioned for one of his attendants. You there, go out into the jungle and collect as many poisonous snakes as you can find. If steel can't cut his flesh, perhaps poison can putrefy it. By the time the attendant returned with a large basket, Prahilada was deep in meditation. The attendant crept up quietly behind him and set the basket on the floor. In a sudden movement, he upended the basket and ran back to the safety of the doorway. Dozens of serpents came pouring out of the basket like an undulating black river. Vipers and cobras writhed on the floor, curling and uncurling their bodies with wild anger. From the throne dais, Hiranyakashipu watched as the snakes began to slither toward Prahilada. They flicked their forked tongues in and out, scenting the air as they prepared to strike. But just as the first serpent was about to sink its long fangs into Prahilada's arm, it stopped. Instead, the snake curled up alongside Prahilada, sliding its scaly body along his crossed legs. The next snake did the same, lying quiet and content close to the boy. The snakes continued to curl around Prahilada until it seemed like he sat atop a great rug woven from their bodies. They would not attack him. Hiranyakashipu shouted in anger, Impossible! Inconceivable! How dare these snakes disobey me! He sat back, staring with hatred at his once-beloved son. 
Vishnu's protection was powerful indeed, but the conniving Asura king had one last idea. He said, Someone, fetch me my sister Holika. I have a task for her. But Prahilada did not hear his father. In the midst of meditation, his mind had once again traveled to the dark lake. There was no sign of the storm clouds, but as Prahilada prayed to Lord Vishnu, he heard a distant rumble. But this time, it was not a peal of thunder. It was the roar of a lion. Next, Lord Vishnu answers Prahilada's prayer. Now, back to the story. When dozens of snakes refused to attack Prahilada, Hiranyakashipu sent for his sister Holika to help him kill the boy. By the time she arrived, much had happened in the throne room. While a servant went to seek out Holika, the king's Asura generals banged on the palace floor with their swords to frighten the snakes away. The generals constructed a great pyre of timber around where Prahilada sat. They covered it with dried reeds and leaves, stuffing every crevice in the wood full of kindling. Finally, Holika arrived, an Asura demon like her brother Holika appeared as a tall woman with wild, dark hair and burning red eyes. But unlike the other Asuras, she had a special power. Holika was blessed with flesh that could not burn. Even if she sat in the heart of the hottest fire, she would not be touched by the flames. She came to the foot of the broken dais and bowed deeply to Hiranyakashipu, her long hair falling in front of her stern face. Hiranyakashipu said, My sister Holika, look upon your nephew who is no longer your family. He is a traitor to our race and must die. Take him on your lap and sit on the pyre so we can be sure the fire will burn him to death. Holika nodded sharply and went to the pyre. She lifted Prahilada and carried him to the top, where she sat with the boy on her lap. She said, My king, I am ready. Light the torches. The pyre caught quickly, and soon orange flames were shooting a dozen feet high. The platform beneath Holika began to grow hot as flames licked her crossed legs. She whispered to Prahilada, Fear not, young one. It will be over soon, and you will be reincarnated as a new being. Prahilada did not respond, but only continued to pray. Hiranyakashipu looked on, satisfied to see the conflagration engulfing his sister and his son. Soon, Lord Vishnu's influence would be eradicated from this palace. Suddenly, a scream came from the pyre, but instead of the young boy's voice Hiranyakashipu expected to hear, it was the wail of a woman in excruciating pain. Holika screamed, Hiranyakashipu, what have you done? 
The flames are burning me alive. My hair, my skin, everything is on fire. Hiranyakashipu called for water, but it was already too late. By the time his generals and servants had doused the fire, Holika was no more than a blackened corpse sprawled on the wooden boards. Prahilada was still seated on what used to be her lap, unscathed and unmoving. He opened his eyes and looked surprised at the ashes beneath him. Tears sprang unbidden to hear Inyakashapu's eyes. He had lost his brother and now his sister to the powers of Lord Vishnu. He sprang from the broken dais and towered above Prahilada. Hiranyakashipu said, I am the immortal ruler of heaven and earth. The gods could not stop me. Tell me, what is the power that protects you? Prahilada rose to his feet. Even at his full height, he barely reached his father's elbow. Prahilada said, Father, Lord Vishnu is the source of my power. He is the source of all powers, even yours. He is everywhere and in every creation. Hiranyakashipu threw back his head and laughed madly. He drew his sword and scanned the room. His gaze alighted on a tall pillar that stood near Prahilada. He said, Everywhere is he? If Vishnu is everywhere, then shouldn't he be in this pillar? If he is not in this pillar, then I shall behead you where you stand. Prahilada responded, Father, he was in the pillar, is in the pillar, and will be in the pillar. Lord Vishnu is the largest mountain and the smallest twig. With an enraged cry, Hiranyakashipu swung his great sword at the pillar. It sliced through the stone and broke it into thousands of pieces. The roar of a lion sounded throughout the throne room. Where the pillar had once stood, there was now a tall man with the head of a snarling lion. His eight arms swirled around his body, each ending in sharp lion's claws. A brilliant light emanated from the lion man, blinding the asuras gathered in the room. Hiranyakashipu backed away in horror. He could see that this was an avatar of Vishnu, his sworn enemy. The being said, I am Nara Simha, the protector, sent here to deliver my devotee from death and destruction. Nara Simha lunged at Hiranyakashipu, his many arms outstretched. Before the Asura king could flee, Narasimha had him in his grasp. It carried the struggling demon to the heavy golden doors, which were flung open by unseen hands. As he struggled, Hiranyakashipu yelled, 
New form or no, you cannot best me. Lord Brahma has granted me the power of immortality. I cannot be killed by any weapon, man, or beast. I cannot be killed inside or outside, during the day or night, on the ground or in the sky. No creation of Brahma can ever defeat me. Narasimha replied, Here in Yakashapu, I am not a man or beast, but a hybrid of both. I carry no weapon but the claws that grow from my hands. Narasimha brought him to the door of the throne room. He said, Look out into the courtyard. It's dusk, the hour when it is neither day nor night. Look down at my feet. I am on the threshold, neither inside nor outside. Narasimha crouched at the threshold and lowered Hiranyakashipu to his lap. Here on my thighs, you are neither on the ground nor in the sky. Hiranyakashipu, it is your time to die. Narasimha raised his many clawed hands to strike, but Hiranyakashipu cried out, Stop! You cannot kill me. No creation of Brahma can kill me. Narasimha replied, I was not created by Brahma. I am Brahma, and he is me. Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva are one. In a flurry of arms, Narasimha attacked. His sharp lion claws tore Hiranyakashipu's flesh and dug deep into his abdomen. Narasimha brought his claws quickly downward, slicing open the Asura king's belly like an overripe mango. His entrails spilled to the floor, steaming in the coolness of the night. Hiranyakashipu was dead. Narasimha turned to the Asuras watching in the throne room, foam leaking from the sides of his mouth. His many hands were stained with blood. He let Hiranyakashipu's body slide to the floor and walked back toward the demon king's followers. Just as he raised his arms to attack once more, Prahilada stepped forward. Narasimha stopped recognizing his devotee. Prahilada said, I thank you, Lord Narasimha, for saving me from my father. I ask that you let the others return to earth. It was only under his orders that they took heaven from the gods. Do not seek vengeance upon them. Narasimha nodded, moved by the young boy's wise words. He let his whirling arms fall to his side. His work was done, and the creations of the earth were once again safe from evil. Narasimha was a heroic avatar of Vishnu who used the ferocious nature of the lion to protect his peaceful devotee. Vishnu chose this avatar to circumvent Hiranyakashipu's powers, balancing the intelligence of man and the power of beast in one form. Narasimha comes from the words Nara, meaning man, and Simha, meaning lion. 
Devotees of Vishnu often interpret the Narasimha story as proof that Vishnu is the ultimate protector who will come to earth any time evil threatens those who live there. Older traditions that were assimilated over the years into Hinduism point to the man-lion as a supreme being of perfect harmony. In the body of Narasimha, Vishnu forms a symbiotic relationship between man and beast, much in the way an early settler in India depended on and cared for the domestic and wild animals that populated the area. The story of Narasimha teaches that those who remain pure and devoted to Vishnu and forego earthly attachments will be cared for and preserved. On a deeper, more primal level, it represents the concept of a partnership between man and nature being more than the sum of its parts. By working in harmony with the wild, a whole new world of complex tasks and creative pursuits are open to humans. The story of Prahalada and Narasimha also carries a warning for those who hear it. Though man can and should work in unity with nature, humans should carry a healthy fear and respect of the animals lurking outside their threshold. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Narasimha, among the many sources we used, we found George M. Williams' Handbook of Hindu Mythology and Kamala Chandrakant's Prahlad, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 